Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Get ready. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Here we go. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac fathered Jacob. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab. Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered King David. I can tell you are already on the edge of your seats because this passage is exciting. Then, after all that excitement, David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. That is, we'll get to that. Solomon fathered Rehoboam, Rehoboam fathered Abijah, Abijah fathered Asa, Asa fathered Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat fathered Joram, Joram fathered Uzziah, Uzziah fathered Jotham, Jotham fathered Ahaz, Ahaz fathered Hezekiah, Hezekiah fathered Manasseh, Manasseh fathered Amon, Amon fathered Josiah, and Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. We are only two-thirds of the way through all of these names, none of which rhyme. Verse 12, then, after all that excitement, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah fathered Shealtiel, Shealtiel fathered Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel fathered Abiad, Abiad fathered Eliakim, Eliakim fathered Azor, Azor fathered Zadok, Zadok fathered Akim, Akim fathered Eliad, Eliad fathered Elazar, Elazar fathered Mathon, Mathon fathered Jacob, and Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. That is how this guy named Matthew decided would be the most engaging, interesting way possible to tell the world that God himself came down to be our savior and king. He thoughtfully said, I'm going to put all these names together and people will be really interested in those names. And that's what we have as the foundation of our Lord and savior, Jesus the king. So we're going to go all the way to the beginning and start over again. The historical record of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham fathered Isaac. This is the Abraham who heard the voice of God call and say, go this direction. And he didn't know what was that direction. All he knew is that it meant he was leaving everything he knew, his family, his place, his customs. And he faithfully listened and followed this God into the unknown. Uh, Abraham is then known as this incredible man of faith. 
And it's the same incredible man of faith named Abraham, who was also known for his pretty incredible fear at times. He's walking with his wife and everyone in their kind of caravan, and they are approached by another king. And he knows that his wife is gorgeous and beautiful. And so he says to her, you're gorgeous and beautiful. And she says, thank you. And then he says, pretend you're my sister, because I don't want them to kill me because they want you. And so he literally kind of ushers his wife into the hands of another man. This is the beginning of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. After that, we see that Abraham is this faithful man who is absurdly generous with his stuff, with his things. He is giving and giving and giving, and he trusts what has been given to him in the hands of God, and he's generous with it. Eventually, he is promised that he will have a son and that son will grow into a nation as many as the stars and that all people and all of the world will be blessed through him. But he gets really old and he doesn't have a son. And so his wife, the same beautiful, gorgeous one he sent off into another man's arms, has the idea that, you know what, God said this was going to happen, but it has not happened. God promised this, but that promise has not come through Yet. So let's take matters into our own hands. She tells him to sleep with one of their servants and they'll have a baby boy in this way. And so Abraham listens to his wife and does so. And a baby boy is born and she is really not happy about the success of her own idea. And so she abuses this woman and Abraham, this faithful man of God, just stands by and watches. Eventually, Abraham has this son because God is faithful to his promise, the original one. And then God tells him to go sacrifice that son. And Abraham listens, thinking God has to have some plan along the way. And God does. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac then fathers Jacob. Jacob is known as the deceiver. In his old age, Isaac is going blind or near there, and Jacob knows that his father does not love him the most. Jacob knows that his father, Isaac, does not love he and his older brother equally, and so Jacob deceives Isaac into receiving the blessing from his father. Then Jacob goes on to be deceived. He uh, sees another gorgeous, beautiful woman that he would like to be his wife. And she is so gorgeous and so beautiful that he decides she would be worth working for seven years to be with. And day after day and month after month after month, he thinks about this woman being his bride. And finally, the night comes and she is going to be his bride. And they have sex together. And then he wakes up and finds out, oh, that's not her. And he was deceived. This is where Jesus comes from, this family line. So then he spends another seven years working for the wife that he thought he had gotten that he had not. We're just getting started. We're not through verse 2 yet. Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers. Verse 3, making progress. Here's where things get really crazy. Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now, I can't even, like, you can't make up what happens here. It's pretty explicit. So I'm just going to read it to you. If you want, turn to Genesis 38. Again, we're studying the family line, the bloodline, the heritage, the historical record of our Lord and Savior, King Jesus. 
Genesis 38, verse 1. At that time, Judah left his brothers and settled near an Adullamite named Hira. There, Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He took her as a wife and slept with her. She conceived and gave birth to a son, and he named him Er. She conceived again, gave birth to a son, and he named him Onan. She gave birth to another son and named him Shelah. It was at Chezib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. Now Ur, Judah's firstborn, was evil in the Lord's sight. We're going to read that a lot about the people in this list. And the Lord put him to death. Just a side note. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife. That's a real weird sentence. But it was pretty customary then because it was only in this way as people died all the time that family lines could be continued, that a woman would find security and stability as the family would continue to grow. There's people to help on the farm. This is how an army is established. And so this was customary in order to keep a deceased brother's family in line together. Sleep with your brother's wife. Perform your duty as her brother-in-law and produce offspring for your brother. Here's where we really begin to see the depravity of sin in humanity. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he released his semen on the ground so that he would not produce offspring for his brother. That is in the Bible. What he did, here we go, was evil in the Lord's sight. Quick side note. So he put him to death also. Verse 11. Then... It's about to get worse. Judah said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, remain a widow in your father's house until my son, Shelah, grows up, for he thought he might die too like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's house. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had finished mourning, doesn't say how long that took, he and his friend Hirah, the Adullamite, went up to Timnah to the sheep shears. Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's clothes, veiled her face, covered herself, and sat at the entrance to Aniam, which is on the way to Timnah. For she saw that, though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as a wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He's just done mourning his wife. Verse 16, he went over to her and said, come, let me sleep with you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me for sleeping with me? Apparently the price was a young goat from his flock. But she said, only if you leave something with me until you send it. What should I give you? He asked. She answered, your signet ring, your cord, and the staff in your hand. In essence, everything that identifies you as you. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she got pregnant by him. She got up and left, then removed her veil and put her widow's clothes back on. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adullamite, in order to get back the items that were very important, he had left with the woman, he could not find her. He asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was beside the road at Anayim? There has been no cult prostitute here, they answered. So the Adolamite returned to Judah, saying, I could not find her. And furthermore, the men of the place said, there has been no cult prostitute here. Here is the moment when Judah starts to recognize something not good is happening. Judah replied, let her keep the items for herself. Otherwise, we will become a laughingstock. He has no idea. After all, I did send this young goat, but you could not find her. 
About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar has been acting like a prostitute, and now she is pregnant. Bring her out, Judah said. Let her be burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent her father-in-law this message. I am pregnant by the man to whom these items belong. And she added, examine them. Whose signet ring, cord, and staff are these? Judah recognized them and said, She is more in the right than I, since I did not give her to my son Sheila. And he did not know her intimately again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twins in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread around it, announcing, This one came out first. But then he pulled his hand back and his brother came out. Then she said, you have broken out first. So he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread tied to his hand, came out and was named Zerah. We're still on verse 3. Perez then fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Aram. Aram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. By Rahab. Up to that point from the awkward family situation, it's kind of nothing too significant. Some good stories, but nothing too crazy, except here, Boaz by Rahab. Anytime we read this by word, Boaz by Rahab, that clues us in that there's more happening. There's another prostitute situation with a foreign woman. This is Rahab. Every Hebrew Jewish individual that would have been read this account as Matthew is announcing the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, God of the universe coming to be with us as a man to save the world. They would have recognized this name Rahab as that savior-like prostitute that established the kingdom in many ways for God's people after the exodus. Two spies were sent into this territory. We just finished our study on uh, the Ten Commandments. It's not too long after this that they're going to be entering into the promised land. Two spies are sent in, and they're almost killed, but they hide out in a prostitute's house, and she covers for them. She lies and says they're not here, and then she makes them promise that they will protect her whole household. And so they make an arrangement that if she puts out a scarlet rope outside of her window, that the army and God will pass over her household, that they will be embraced and protected. And everybody that reads this would know that it symbolizes, it refers back to the Passover that they themselves as the nation of Israel had just experienced when God passed over all of the firstborns when the blood of a lamb, which was red, was placed on the doorpost. And from Rahab, this prostitute who was a foreign woman, not a royal bloodline, eventually a boy named Jesus would be born and he would grow and his blood would be on a wooden post so that our sin would be passed over because of his loving sacrifice. We're on verse five. Boaz then fathered Obed, here we go again, by Ruth, another foreign woman. It's not customary to have women in the genealogy, let alone foreign women. Ruth uh, was married to somebody from the, the land of Judah. 
And she had a a brother-in-law and sister-in-law and a mother-in-law and everybody, the father-in-law, her husband and her brother-in-law dies. And so her mother-in-law, Naomi, is going to return back home to Judah. And Ruth decides that she will go with her, that she will reject all of these other gods that she was used to worshiping, that she had grown up worshiping. And instead, she's going to choose the God of the people that just died. Makes no sense. Yet for some reason, she feels called to this, and she does. She goes into, like Abraham, faithfully, a foreign land, into the unknown, hoping that somehow it will work out. And Ruth is the, as it just so happens, reminder. That as it just so happens, through God's law, and actually a really powerful, affluent man, who is gracious to her, God would be faithful, not once, but again and again and again and again. And thousands of years later, a baby boy named Jesus would be born and he would grow up and he will become king. And we too can be reminded that not once, but again and again and again and again, he will be faithful. Boaz, fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. Now, Jesse had seven other sons, not named David. Seven older, better sons in everyone else's eyes. David should not have been picked, yet God hand-selected him. David would go on to defeat Goliath when no one else would. Songs would be written and sung, stories told for generations. He would become the hero, really in an everlasting way, for an entire nation. His his conquests and the army were unparalleled. The wealth and prosperity and health and wisdom for this people of God would be unmatched from this point forward under his leadership And one day, like his ancestors, he sees a beautiful naked woman bathing and he just can't help himself, which leads to murder, which leads to this mind-blowing line in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the King. Then David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. You could also read it. Then David fathered Solomon by another man's wife wife. This is where baby Jesus comes from. From this, we get away in the manger and Mary, did you know, right there. (laughs) Then David fathered Solomon by another man's wife, King David. Solomon was a lot like his father. He was known as perhaps the wisest man in all of the world, yet he had a problem. Women. They led him astray, and so he did something that would become tainted water that every son after him would drink from. They did not rid themselves of other gods, but they flirted and kind of participated with other gods in the land. They did not rid themselves or the whole nation of them. And so from this point forward, we see this back and forth of sons that became kings that did what was evil. They were devoted to what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And then some, through this same bloodline, that were devoted to do what was good, what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We read about it in 1 Kings 15, verses 1 through 5. 
In the 18th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, son of Nebat, Abijam became king over Judah and reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. Abijam walked in all the sins his father before him had committed, not some of them, all of them, and he was not completely devoted to the Lord his God as his ancestor David had been. This is where Jesus comes from. But... Because of David, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem to raise up his son after him and to establish Jerusalem. For David did what was right in the Lord's eyes, and he did not turn aside from anything he had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Then we skip to verse 9. In the 20th year of Israel's king Jeroboam, Asa became king of Judah and reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Makkah, daughter of Abishalom. Asa did what was right in the Lord's eyes, as his ancestor David had done. That's pretty wild. As his ancestor David had done. Might speak to the love and grace and forgiveness of God in the midst of our extreme sin. He banished the male cult prostitutes from the land and removed all of the idols that his father had made. He also removed his grandmother, Maka, from being queen, mother, because she had made an obscene image of Asherah. We won't get into what that image was. Asa chopped down her obscene image and burned it in the Kidron Valley. The high places were not taken away. That phrase is repeated again and again and again. The high places were these temptations of worship of other gods. He did a lot right, but they did not eradicate themselves of other options. They did not choose Jesus alone. They did not choose Yahweh alone. Yet, Asa's heart was completely devoted to the Lord his entire life. He brought his father's consecrated gift and his own consecrated gifts into the Lord's temple, silver, gold, and utensils. Then we just have this kind of mismatch, some good devoted to the Lord, some really evil devoted to doing what was evil in the Lord's sight, all the way up to verse 11. And Josiah fathered Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. Exile to Babylon, meaning King David's throne is crushed, meaning Abraham's descendants in essence, seem as if they are no more. They are dispersed everywhere. They are conquered and defeated. The temple is destroyed. There's nothing left for them. It seems very hopeless. And that is very intentionally put in here by Matthew to express the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, this historical record, son of David, son of Abraham. Then we'll fast forward, some kind of exciting things, some not so exciting things happen all the way after this exile to verse 16. And Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. 
A lot of sexual sin and prostitutes, non-royal bloodlines, confusion, chaos. I mean, this genealogy is the epitome of good and bad, broken and beautiful. It is not what you would expect for the God of the universe to come through. Yet he intentionally did. And it seems as if all is good. Here comes Jesus, but not so fast. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together, before they came together, that she was pregnant. That is a problem. Because here is Joseph engaged to this woman, and one day he notices she's grown a little bit, and he's not yet had sex with her. And so that's a problem. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her or bring about her death publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. That was the right, godly, here, keyword, righteous thing for Joseph to do in this moment because his fiancée is pregnant, not by him. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Side note here, that's, that's pretty important. If he doesn't divorce her, now the blame is on him, culturally. There's a cost to be paid, a price to be paid, if Joseph moves forward with this. And then he hears, I mean, just incredibly comforting words. Because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine hearing that? Like, oh, okay, no problem. That makes sense to me. The angel continues, she will give birth to a son, and you, not the father, are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. That is quite the dream. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet see. Meaning, you will see. This will happen. This is my promise. This is my faithfulness. See, the virgin will become pregnant. What makes no sense will happen. What shouldn't happen will become a reality because I am God and you are not. Your thoughts are not my thoughts and my ways are, your, are not your ways. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated God is with us. When Joseph got up from sleeping, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. What an unreal sentence that is so neglected. One more time, this whole line, this whole story, everything here could fall apart. But like Abraham, he steps into absurd faithfulness into the unknown. He did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but did not know her intimately until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. That is pretty wild. Matthew was intentional with this genealogy. It's a bunch of seemingly boring names that don't rhyme or make much sense, but there's a whole lot packed into these 17 verses that are meant to change our lives. Here's why Matthew included this genealogy. To display God's promises, to display God's faithfulness, and to display God's invitation. 
this is not the royal bloodline you would expect of the king and the Messiah to come. And that is on purpose. Because who this God comes from tells us who this God came for. The stories this God comes from tells us the stories this God comes for. Meaning, the invitation is for all. The foreigner, the prostitute, the really messed up family and families with all kinds of issues, with all kinds of faithlessness. And here comes Jesus, triumphant through all that. And here comes Matthew writing, there is nothing that this baby boy, king to come, will not triumph over. And this invitation is for you and your neighbor, you and everyone around you, you and your friends and your family and your enemies, because his love has no boundaries, because his love cannot be defeated. The other night, my, uh, my daughter climbed out of her uh, bunk bed, found her way into my room, and with hot tears rolling down her cheeks and a look of a mixture of devastation and fury and unfathomable betrayal looked me in the eyes because for three seemingly eternal minutes and then an additional 14 miserable, excruciating seconds, I had not made it into her bedroom to kiss her goodnight. And it seemed to her that her entire world was collapsing at 8.03 p.m. on a Tuesday night in her sleepy little neighborhood in Prescott, Arizona, because mom said dad will be there. And I told her I would be there, and I had not yet fulfilled that promise. And in her mind, that promise was broken because, I don't know, her brother needed something or her other sister was crying or the other sister was doing something that I had to deal with. And so next thing you know, three you can't believe how long those minutes lasted in her mind, plus 14 extra seconds. And I wasn't there. The promise was broken. I had betrayed her. And you saw the pain in her extra red, moist cheeks because of it. I actually think in life you can maybe track all pain down to broken promises. Even physical pain, there's a, a promise as you're young and you grow of what your body will be capable of. And eventually, that promise is broken, and you're met with new, harsh, cold, unathletic realities. <laughs> you think about a family unit that is formed, that's literally made. Think about that. When a, a husband-to-be and a wife-to-be stand at a, a wedding ceremony, and they make vows, they make promises, what's happening in that moment is that life is being made. A life is being made, and then eventually, maybe they make a son or a daughter, a child is born, and again, life is made to be a certain way, and there's promises built into it, and vision, and expectations, and then one day, maybe it's the husband or the wife, or both, they don't want to, or can't, or don't know what's happening, and someone chooses to break those promises, and often, there's biblical and even good reason for those, those promises to be broken. The point is not that. The point is that pain is caused through broken promises. A vision of a way that life was made to be 
that is no longer. And everyone in this room has experienced that in some way. And everyone in this genealogy experienced the pain of broken promises in some way. And every child to be born in our world will experience the pain of broken promises and life being not the way it was made to be in some way. And then comes Jesus, Emmanuel, God is with us, who could have come through any bloodline he wanted, and he chose that list. So that we would never forget that Jesus has never and will never break a promise. No matter how faithless we are, he will always be faithful. No matter the story you come from, he will be triumphant. This genealogy is this unbelievable foundation that we can hold on to and never doubt. Though we'll, we'll have reasons to question, just as the people in this genealogy did, that this God never has and never will break his promises. So I want to close briefly with uh, four of those promises. They're not the only promises. They're not even the most important promises, but four promises that Jesus has made to us. The, the first is in uh, John chapter 6, verses 37 through 40. We read this. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Think about how many people and stories in that line should have been cast out that were not. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none, not one of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. That's the promise that we get to be with Jesus forever, that he will raise up what is broken, what is dead back to life. Eternity is the promise he has made. In John 14, 15 through 18, Jesus makes another promise to us. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commands, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. Not around you sometimes, not near. Maybe he'll answer the call. Maybe he'll, he won't. The spirit of God that raised Jesus from the grave is within you if you're a follower of Christ. And then Jesus makes another promise. I will not leave you as orphans. I am coming to you. This from the man, from the boy, from the king that has yet to ever break a promise. Then turn to Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I wonder what made them weary when Jesus spoke these words. I wonder what kind of burdens were upon them. Relational ones, ones with family, financial considerations, parents aging, world government, political powers creating all kinds of questions and issue in the world seemingly falling apart right before them. 
And here's Jesus with a promise. I will give you rest. Not I might, but I will. All of you, take up my yoke and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for yourselves. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And we can turn all the way to the end of this Gospel of Matthew. We read the beginning, the foundation for it, and here's how it ends. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. Then Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, invitation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, do not forget, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the promise of Jesus. This is the promise of Emmanuel. God is with us. And that is good news. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you simply to say thank you, to worship our King, our Savior, our God in perfection who steeped himself into sin to bring triumph and life from it. Thank you that you are with us. We love you. We worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. And we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, Jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, If you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember, Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.